0: had to go about it, it out, find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. It's the Final week Cricket Podcast with Adam Collins, presenting the greatest season that was, 99 World Cup, four years on from when we first made this program. I've got down the line with me for the first time in too long, Shannon Gill, And Dan Breddick, Shannon Gill these days from Code Sports and Dan Breddick, regular guest was on last week from The Age, the Chief Cricket Writer there. Lads, we have decided to, on the basis that the calling the shots, Director's Cut went so well uh, before the World Cup to start rolling out a, a show that we made exactly four years ago. Well, I say exactly four years ago, four years ago in the World Cup context, during the 2019 World Cup about world cup 99 the second series of the greatest season that was and gilly it's uh, it's it's been a while for you you just turned your recorder on it barely worked i haven't haven't had, haven't put the mic into this for a while um we, we got quite busy there making a whole series of these documentaries and this feels like it's uh, the type of show that should live on the, the final word feed as well for those who didn't hear it the first time around back four years ago hello to you
1: yes g'day kyle and g'day dan uh the final word has kicked on and kicked on, and as we, we discussed this a few weeks ago, that why wouldn't why wouldn't the people that listen to the final word every week and the huge audience that listens every week now be interested in this little thing we did a while ago? And it, and it, it I, I was quite shocked when you said, it's, of course it's four years because it's a World Cup time, but it, it just made me sort of stop and think. Wow, that is a long time ago, and it, it some of it seems like yesterday, some of it does seem like a long time ago, but. I've been revisiting some of those episodes uh, over the last couple of weeks and it's really interesting to listen to them and just sort of reminisce about where we were and uh, what we were thinking at the time.
0: Yeah, I think that's been, for me, the the, the joy of going back to these in the last fortnight since we agreed to uh, go again on this series was that, you know, uh, the audio expectations were less than, I should foreshadow that off the top, that some of these interviews and the way we tap in, <laughs> you wouldn't get away with that these days because podcasting has changed so much, recording remotely has changed so much as a as a function of the pandemic, which is you know, been and went since we made this show. Dan, what hasn't changed is our passion for weird shit uh, and that includes what you've simply, uh, within minutes of us recording, <laughs> you have purchased something, a gift for the three of us, the greatest season that was, uh, 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 well, if we ever opened a museum, improbable as it would be, the Batmobile would be in there. And, and so with this, what have you picked up?
2: Well, it's, it's slightly smaller scale than the Batmobile, but uh, no no less significant in the annals of cricket history. A, mm-hmm. uh, a cap from the World Series cricket Cavaliers in the 1978-79 season. So uh, the Cavaliers were the, uh, the players sort of not picked for the first 11s of the Australia West Indies and World 11s in the World Series cricket competitions in those two years before the Peace Deal was signed in 1979. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a lovely uh, lime green coloured uh, mm-hmm. skull cap, uh, not a baggy cap. And um, <laughs> yes, we, we picked that one up for two hundred and fifty dollars. So uh, yeah, it's, when, 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 when we're next in uh, yeah, we can, yes. when we're next it's in the same room together, to we'll, we'll Bat- have to try Bat-Mobile it
1: on. Color, but these two items are, are drawn together because yes. the Batmobile appeared at VFL Park and World Series cricket was played at VFL Park. Very, so they do belong together.
0: Very good, and yeah, the other um, the other item that we picked up in a later series Australia Ray, was Joe Angels batting helmet, which we ended up auctioning off for charity during the bushfires uh, in I guess that was early twenty twenty. H- how the world's changed! Uh, it was such a great. Time though in our lives, and I just want to be a little bit self-indulgent here. Making the greatest season it was is the reason why calling the shots happened. So what we did through this series was uh, assemble lots of different interviews, and then as we worked through the process of uh, releasing them, as we had the previous year with the '93 Aussie Rules series, was we're like, well, actually, there's something in uh, all of these about the '99 semi-final between Australia and South Africa, the famous tied semi, and we're like. No one's ever done the definitive history of this. So we thought we would make an oral history, or that's how we described it at the time, where we just used the voices of those who were there that day, along with commentary snippets and news footage and archival stuff that we were able to pick up off YouTube. And that was released as Calling the Shots was going out, but the, the skills that we developed to put that together was what kind of inspired Norcross and me to go away and make that later series. So that, that'll come later. We might actually release the semi-final ep during semi-final week in India in about a month from now. And between times, we'll have in today's ep, after we finish chatting, another conversation between the three of us that we had at the very start about why 99, because that was a question we were asked by many people at the very beginning. Why have you picked this World Cup? Sure, it's 20 years on, but what what's the basis for saying this is the greatest World Cup ever held? And that wasn't always an easy question to answer, but I think for us it was – A reflection of the time that we grew up and the various quirks that happened across those six weeks when it was happening the type of ball being used i don't want to kind of repeat everything that's about to come later in this recording in the ep we recorded back then but um yeah as a framework gilly that was a question that we had to deal with quite a bit that this world cup why does it distinguish itself above others and and i think we over 10 or 12 episodes answered that pretty well
1: yeah and it was the same question we would get when we first did the the 1993 um, AFL series, and I think when people asked us the question, they they were sort of missing the point. We we were saying the greatest World Cup it was, or the greatest AFL season it was, but it, it wasn't about whether it was the the greatest World Cup it was. It was about actually going in and, and diving deep and finding out more about what happened. And bring it, it to life for people who had either forgotten about it or never knew about it. I think one of the things I've sort of in the years past that I've been surprised about is the amount of people that are younger than us that didn't really have any recollection of whether it's the '99 World Cup or other things that we've done, and didn't have that sort of nostalgia feel about it. But actually, just wanted to find out about it um, mm. as a, a new discovery. So that was really interesting to me uh, as well. But I think I think that the Look, the answers that you'll hear in the Y99, I think, are proven through, uh, through the series. The question is whether um, off the back of 2019, uh, whether it still is the greatest World Cup it is, and that's probably a discussion for another day.
0: Yeah, it, it's an open question, isn't it, whether it was overtaken by the tournament in England 20 years. And I don't think there's any other real contender for various reasons, but, yeah, that, that that's, maybe three other enthusiasts can make a a retrospective pot about 2019 in like 16 years from now or something like that. Dan, the other sort of charming part of this was that, well, for me anyways, that Gilly was with me for a lot of this in London. You came and joined at the end because Gilly came over for his job at the time to be in England during the World Cup. So we often had you down the line or before Gilly got to England, it was the other way around. You and he were doing interviews where I was down the line and we just had to make do, but it was a, a a series of interviews that we're fairly proud of, and and some that went in directions we didn't anticipate.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I one of the ones that I remember best was Lance Klusner, the Zulu, and that was one of several that I dialed in to record with you guys from Horsham, which is where my then partner and now wife. Uh, was living, and the fact that I spent a lot of that 2019 World Cup before I got to England at the, at the back end of it, you know, in the uh, outer reaches of Western Victoria, and uh, you know, certainly a very you know specific time and place for me. But yeah, there were also there were other locations. Um, Aminul Islam, uh, the Bangladeshi great, mm. uh, now lives in sort of southeast uh, Melbourne down the down the freeway. So. I ventured down there and um, and dialed um, you guys in or dialed Gilly in, and um, then another one that I really enjoyed was um, was just catching up with uh, with with Tim Lane in his place uh, a little bit closer to um, the centre of Melbourne, and um, that was an important interview not just for his recollections and obviously his dulcet tones, but also the fact that he had uh, kept a CD of the highlights. The radio highlights of that World cup I mean that's one of the great things about ninety nine we're still in an era where there's you know CDs etc and um, that then became very very useful in the semi-final episode
0: in particular. oh, Absolutely. I mean, to go behind the curtain, we didn't have access to the BBC or ABC archive of that game. We tried to go through official channels and got knocked on the head. So we needed Tim to, to, as a workaround, to have the CD of the highlights, which complemented the TV stuff on, on YouTube pretty well. What I remember distinctly, Gilly, is you driving, uh, I don't know where you were working that day, but a long, long way from Southampton. You drove down to Southampton to join me and we sat on Harsha Bogley's bed uh, to talk to him about India 99 campaign.
1: It was it was one of the most bizarre days of my life um, because I think I I started somewhere um, a fair way north of, of London, then ended ended up at nighttime on Harsha Bhogle's bed in <laughs> Southampton, and then I think I finished the night at about 3am in in um, in Nottingham. So it was it was a, a a weird weird day, but but I mean so satisfying to actually. Be sitting there and speaking to uh, you know the voice of the voice of cricket for um, you know so many people and and have that private audience in the weird situation of sitting on his hotel bed, but you know it was a really good interview and 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 I think in some ways those moments of sitting with people as much as we now know the 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 Zoom life of of um, doing things over. Uh, over a computer screen, actually being in that space with Harsha was was I think something that just gave us something a little bit extra. And I think Colo, we were just reminiscing on this, and this is particularly the case when we when we interviewed Andy Flower, and and um, you remember that distinctly, as we 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 stood together and watched that, and it was quite a quite an emotional thing, wasn't
0: it? Yeah, I mean Andy Flower is known as one of the. The hard man of uh, world cricket, both as Zimbabwean captain and then uh, as the coach of England, a senior administrator at the ECB, and, and all the other things he's done. When I say administrator, I mean kind of director of cricket to the style roles that he's held there. But uh, the prevailing take is always that Flower is a hard man. And for whatever reason, he wasn't a hard man that day. He was quite uh, vulnerable and gentle um, when talking about what had happened to Zimbabwe, not so much in 99, which was joyous and reaching the Super Sixers the way that they did a couple of stunning victories along the way. It was more to do with what had happened in 2003. And I don't think he talks about that an awful lot these days. So I, I suppose, I like to believe he, he valued the research that we had done and the amount of information that we were regurgitating back to him and he felt comfortable talking with us. So that'll come, and we'll release that uh, later in the stretch. One, Dan, that uh, is a name that if you are not someone who was around in 1999, it's improbable you'll know who they are. The man who led the wickets for the tournament, Jeff Allett. Um, I missed that one. That was the the middle-of-the-night job in in London, but you two were still in Australia on that time zone roughly at the time. But a guy who is always synonymous with that white Dukes ball in May.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, he... um... He had a fabulous tournament and, um, you know, I, I think one of the things that that stuck with me about that interview was I guess the contrast between, you know, him being a very young and sort of rough and ready character as a bowler then. I mean, my first memories were of, of him playing for New Zealand and Australia a couple of years before in a test series uh, and sort of, you know, having his having his struggles but getting it right in 1999 but then, you know, talking to him about, later life and a successful business career and, and, and kind of, you know, the, 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 um, the arc of, of um, uh, achievement for someone post being a cricketer in that New Zealand uh, World Cup team. And, um, yeah, really just capturing once again, like just the moment in time that uh, that, that was. And funnily enough, I was going to say off the back of um, your terrific chat with Andy, which I still, you know, four years later kind of regret I wasn't able to be there. It was a tournament that was kind of the end of, or it was the last tournament almost until this one, where you had you know huge contributions and huge effects on the wider tournament by a country like Zimbabwe. I suppose you could talk and argue Kenya in two thousand three, but you know even what we're seeing at the moment with with Afghanistan and the, and the Netherlands, like it's actually given me a bit of a ninety nine vibe in mm. terms of uh, what we're seeing with. Um, uh, with the performance, or what we saw, sorry, with the performances of
0: Zimbabwe uh, back then. So I'm glad we did a Zimbabwe. Some regrets for me, Gilly, the eps that we never got to do. One was Scotland, Gavin Hamilton. replied to my WhatsApps one day, mate. Uh, he never got back. We really <laughs> wanted Gavin Hamilton uh, to come on and, and, and talk to us uh, and, and discuss Scotland's uh, um, time in that World Cup. That never happened. Dave Stewart from the Eurythmics. We had a dip at getting him. <laughs> Remember, Gilly, (laughs) Gilly, you and I were pestering him on uh, on Twitter and other social media platforms where we could find him. And the context to that is that the Carnival of Cricket theme song, Life is a Carnival, which um, became our theme song for 99 as well, was written by Dave Stewart. Once we learnt this information, we thought we have to get this guy on and And talk about it but he he never returned our calls and we never really featured anything about the West Indies which looks like an oversight in hindsight given I know they didn't make it through to the elimination stages but given how important the Windies were in 90s cricket and uh, well earlier 90s primarily but um, we're still in that decade that we were never able to get hold of anyone who could speak with authority on what happened in those six weeks.
1: Yeah we remember we had a a fair crack at at Curtly and, um, and maybe a couple of others but we just couldn't get that over the line which was a bit of a shame we, we had a, um, a decent go at, uh, at show of as well oh yes That's the other one we tried to get which we didn't quite get but if you for some reason this um, if you're listening to this and you've got contact with show
0: Perhaps. Well, technically, sp- and I forgot about that. Actually, Gilly, I forgot we tried to get shoved. Yeah. Since that, I've spent a night in this compound in Rolpindi um, when I was there last year when we went down there with Tom Decent and I were doing <laughs> a... A piece for for your joint, Dan. Well, Tom was writing up and doing an interview. I was filming it for him, you know, being a good housemate and and and, and contributing my technology to the process. And um, Shahab took us out for dinner afterwards, and you can you can just picture what he's like, like a wad of cash, people coming up to him, and he's like being the life of the party and and uh, and king of the room. But down in his compound, where he's got a life sized, um, what would you call it? Not life sized cardboard cutout. They're the things I collect. A life sized. Portrait of himself that says, I think it says, We Miss You. And he and he got his photo taken with us in front of this We Miss You shower poster, but a like life size <laughs> poster of himself. And uh, there must be hundreds of um, pieces that would sit nicely in the final word, final word, greatest season that was archive or, or museum that we were talking of before. So <laughs> there, there is a way to get to shower. I mean, maybe that's what we try and do here. Maybe the final ep here in this, uh, as I think on my feet, of these. Uh, Reprised episodes where we're going to release each interview over the next couple of months. Some will happen during the World Cup, and some after, um, as we lead into the Australian summer. Maybe we try and get Shaub actor on the line with the three of us, just talking about the '99 World Cup. How's that sound, Gilly?
1: Well, this it's it's like the best of with the new single or the unreleased <laughs> It's now 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 a single um, that we could potentially put out. So, but you know, the campaign starts now. If you want to, I don't know if he's on Twitter, but if we want to hassle him on Twitter, go for your life. Uh, yeah, I, I, well, and who knows? There might be
0: more. There might be more. There might be more. And and, um, and and hopefully there will be more for us as well. We're not going to talk before each episode. What we'll do is I'll just record a brief uh, script that details what we were doing then and when the episode was released and, and that kind of thing. Otherwise, I need to get you guys on the line ten times and that's harder to do these days than it used to be um, with our various other commitments and so on. But um, it, hopefully this is the prompt for us to start recording the greatest season that was again. There were three cricket series all up. There was 99, there was Australia A, which was around the time my first daughter was born. And then there was the Final Frontier, which we recorded when I was in hotel quarantine. So a real, um, a piece of its time uh, back in uh, later 2020, Um, but a couple of footy series as well. And some others that we started making and didn't quite go through with. But yeah, I like to believe this will be the prompt for us to start recording again, boys.
2: Yeah, that would be fantastic. There's one of the things that I love, Revisiting the episodes, and it's not not just the ninety nine World Cup, but but whatever series. It's just the accumulation of little moments that we were able to collect over time with people who sometimes haven't rethought about those matches or those seasons uh, really much in the intervening years at all. Uh, there was actually one in the in the semi final episode from Adam Gilchrist that, that I, uh, I I really loved, which was when. He talks about Hansi Cronje getting out. You know, the third of Warn's three quick wickets. Absolutely not out. Hit on the hit on the foot. But you know, in the mania of the moment, everything looks out, and he's given out. And um, him just remembering and you know having double checked it with having a look at the replay of Warney calming down in the in the huddle a little bit and look actually looking at people and going, "Was that out?" <laughs> And that's just like, it's those little moments that that we've been able to compile over time of, you know, actors in great moments in in sport actually having a a fresh look at those moments.
0: All right. Well, with no further ado, uh, let's roll out the first of these. This is a a brief 20-minute splice that just makes the argument why 99 and after that we'll start with the interviews we'll go with one per week and see where we land gilly bretto thanks for jumping on the line let's do this again soon and one more thing every minute of what we put out with the greatest season that was over the years was overseen and usually edited by one of the very best people you could ever wish to work with in life jay Mueller. be sure to follow jay at bad underscore producer on twitter and instagram he's always working on something that's worth listening to Okay, on with the show. Hi, I'm Brian Roddell. You're listening to The Final Word. Was 1999 the greatest World Cup there was? Perhaps. But was it the most interesting, the quirkiest, home to some of the most memorable moments in the history of our game? That's the case we'll make to you over the next seven weeks as the greatest season that was presents World Cup 99.
2: (laughs)
3: Output Out, oh, he's got, got it. I don't believe it. That's unbelievable. He's out. Peter really decided that's LBW. And a remarkable win by Zimbabwe. Sarah Ganguly just waiting on that long enough to place it away from Johnsy Rhodes. What's that? What a catch! Back wall takes the catch. He just got it away. Who's that? Flash oh. could be. for English cricket already receding towards the back of the national sporting consciousness could be grave indeed. Very sad this, to do an interview as we are know this is hurting my You must make a case for the fact that he probably caught that. Very nice. Very nice.
0: Returning to the original home of the tournament for the first time in 16 years, the pressure was on England to end their roller coaster decade on a high. Instead, their failure to get out of the group stage in bizarre and controversial circumstances contributed to rock bottom as far as the English game was concerned. And that was all before the World Cup anthem was released. Coming in as hot favourites, the top-ranked South Africans cruised and bruised their way through the opening weeks with Lance Klusner stitching together what is surely the best all-round World Cup performance that's ever been. But then they ran into a combination of forces over an epic two matches. Shane Warne, Steve Waugh and the vagaries of net run rate. The dramatic tied Edgbaston semi-final was one for the ages. Those Australians went all the way in a canter a few days later at Lords, but had to go unbeaten in seven games on the trot to do so after a near terminal start to their campaign. Topping up world-class match winners with wily veterans, there was nothing stopping them after overcoming the Proteas in the best game this format has ever seen. This 50-over format that had driven cricket's colossal growth throughout the 1990s. When the pyjamas were on and the ball was white, TV eyeballs and huge crowds followed. Organisers dubbed 1999 the Carnival of Cricket, and this was exactly that. With the swinging Dukes ball and early season pitches tilting the balance of power to the bowler, an unknown Kiwi named Jeff Allett led the competition for wickets, while the Pindi Express, Shaobachtar, pushed ever so close to the 100 mile an hour barrier for the first time. But his Pakistani side were far from infallible en route to the Lord's final, losing to Bangladesh. This was a performance so impressive in their first World Cup that it earned them test match status just one year later. This being the era of World Cup expansion, fellow associate members Scotland and Kenya also played their part on the global stage in 99. Likewise, fellow underdogs Zimbabwe, who through Neil Johnson, an elegant all-rounder who'd represented South Africa A before opening both the bowling and the batting for the nation of his birth, proudly progressed to the Super Sixes after causing their share of upsets. Ah, the Super 6, remember that? Well, this was the first time that cricket toyed with the idea of trying something more creative than quarter and semi-finals. It certainly worked in spicing things up, but they were undermined when Steve Waugh tried and failed to manipulate the complicated new system, much to the outrage of the local media. Meanwhile, India brought commanding batting displays from Rahul Dravid, Surav Ganguly and occasionally Sachin Tendulkar, while also knocking out England – but they were gazumped by Zimbabwe and Henry Alonga in the group stage, raised by Glenn McGrath in the Super Six, and ultimately faded out by allowing New Zealand through to the semifinals. Sri Lanka might have fallen short of expectations, not making it to the second stage, having won the trophy just three and a half years earlier. But along with Indian, Pakistani and Bangladeshi fans, they contributed to a surge of loud and passionate South Asian support in England, which remains a legacy to this day. So for six weeks in 1999, cricket truly was a carnival when the seventh one-day World Cup tournament returned to England. To take you back those two decades to relive the very best and the very worst, this is The Greatest Season That Was, presenting World Cup
1: 99.
0: I'm Adam Collins. I'm Shannon Gill. And I'm Dan Breddick. And this is The Greatest Season That Was, presenting World Cup 99. We are thrilled to be back with you for a second season of The Greatest Season That Was, of course, following the 1993 AFL season in 2018, which we recapped 25 years later. But for the Cricket World Cup of 99, it is now two decades on. Uh, Gilly, it's a tournament that we've spoken about a lot. Uh, Once we finished 93, we knew that this was the obvious next piece of the puzzle for us. A tournament that was really important in terms of the time of life it happened for us as teenage lads watching from Australia, but one with so many memories that have really defined the end of that decade?
1: Yeah, I think there's lots of things here that um, not only define a decade, but... Define one day cricket in a lot of ways. Um, the semi final clearly is is talked about as the greatest uh, game of all time in in one day cricket. Um, the things that I remember from an Australian perspective were, were the go slow that, that uh, Steve Waugh engaged in against the West Indies. Um, Lance Klusner, I mean, what a what an amazing performance his was and as we've gone back I think we've learnt more and more about that. What we
0: do which is go back and talk to the subjects well on, well beyond the point when um, it's still in the news cycle so they can be a bit more open and upfront with us Dan and that's what we've started doing in the last couple of weeks.
2: Yeah the, the, the recollections from 20 years ago uh, really do bring home that this was a tournament that I think to a lot of degrees under promised but ultimately over delivered. That it was uh, seemingly, you know, it was early grey English summer, England got knocked out early, the opening ceremony wasn't up to much, there were issues, some some didn't necessarily like the uniforms, all those kinds of things, but as the tournament built and towards the end, certainly in the Super 6 and semi-final stages, uh, you get a series of moments and matches that really have stood the test of time and cause us to want to go back and have a look at this, not just because the 20 years is a a neat market, but because there are games and moments in this tournament that... Uh, really do stay in the mind's eye as vividly now as they did in
0: 99. Dan, you mentioned the Super Six, and that is something that you'll hear a lot of if you're perhaps a younger listener and you aren't familiar with how they set up the tournament in 99. They decided to um, do away with quarterfinals and reduce the amount of sides that made it through to the second round out of the group stage to six. And, And, Gilly, that was partly a product of cricket's expansionary program at the time. They wanted to have more teams in the World Cup, and that meant tweaking the parameters somewhat, and, and they succeeded in doing so. In 99, Zimbabwe, who'd only been a full member nation for seven years, made it through to the second stage. Bangladesh knocked off Pakistan, which was a big step in them getting test match status. Scotland and Kenya played their parts as well. It was, it was a tournament that truly was a World Cup.
1: Yeah, it was this, half, I suppose, half measure in a way of of making sure everyone was included in those... Um, Uh, non-test-playing nations were involved, but making sure you still had the the amount of marquee games between the big countries later on. And that didn't always work the way it was... Was planned, as we'll explain during the series. But I think the other thing uh, that I look at at this this time is it's it's a cap on the '90s and the '90s, the explosion of cricket during the '90s is, is a huge thing. In that, um, TV becomes such a bigger player, and cable TV becomes a bigger player. Whereas cable TV became a big thing in the US in the '80s, it, it was in the '90s it sort of hit the cricket world, and um, we started to see cricket from. You know, as an Australian, we grew up probably early days in the 80s. You saw the ashes from overseas, but you pretty much saw nothing else. In the 90s, that changes and um, it brings untold money into the game, both in a positive way and a negative way with, you know, the corruption scandals that were, were hovering around cricket at the time. Um, I think the, the what it meant for the cricket world and the cricket fan out there was that we've had we've now had a decade where we've experienced cricket all around the world and then we get this world cup at the home of cricket uh, or the or the place where cricket starts and we we know all these players and these stars and these countries. We know much more about them than we used to know. We didn't. We're not waiting to see them once every four years.
0: A big part of the explosion in in, uh, in cricket's popularity in Australia in the nineties, Dan, had to do with some huge superstars, and they were on show at the pointy end for the Australians as they made their way through to the semi-finals, almost unexpectedly, given what had happened earlier in the tournament, and then ultimately winning the final. Uh, principally Shane Warne and, and Steve Waugh, who arguably the two biggest names of the era. For Australia, uh, and really, it's it's often forgotten how close they were to an early early elimination, only to win seven on the trot and win the whole thing. They
2: were a team that came into that World Cup with a few issues in front of them. Warn and War, the fact that their uh, you know previously close friendship had had been very drastically affected by the fact that War, as captain and part of the touring selection panel, had voted against warn the vice-captain to have him dropped for the last test of the preceding test series in the West Indies because his shoulder wasn't quite up to scratch. So that was a huge issue for them, as was uh, the fact that War's captaincy was still in an embryonic stage. He was still getting a hang of the the kind of um, uh, mark that he wanted to put on the team that he subsequently did successfully but was still trying to work it out. And another one to throw in there is... Glenn McGrath and the English conditions. There were all sorts of theories about the White Dukes ball and the conditions. McGrath was bowling at first change and that really wasn't working for Australia as a formula. So they had all sorts of uh, issues going around and the fact that they built up to a successful conclusion to the tournament and uh, really an overpowering conclusion to the tournament when you think about the final, they uh, really solidified in the minds of a lot of Australia's players, including a a young member of the team called Ricky Ponting, who'd go on to be captain and uh, winning captain of the next two World Cups
0: after this, that a World Cup is not about how you start, but how you finish. Yeah, a couple of pivotal spells from in Glenn McGrath's career, really, when you consider what he did against the West Indies and then against India. Gilly, it, it was a bowl as well, cup in many respects. There are only three scores. Over 300, the, the ball was swinging around. There was Shoaib Bakhtar for Pakistan nearly hitting 100 miles an hour in the old money. It was an exciting time to be a seaman, a fast bowler. It was,
1: it was really the, the, the arrival of Shoa Bakhtar on the, on the world stage. He'd been around for a few years, but this was his coming out party as being a superstar of international cricket. And while his star didn't shine bright for that long, when we, when we talk in the context of the McGraths and Warns, the excitement generated around Shoab during this World Cup was amazing. But then we go to the other end of the spectrum and talk about a bloke from New Zealand by the name of Jeff Allott, who was the leading wicket taker, taker in the tournament. I don't think he professes to be Shoab Akdar, but it just showed that this tournament, and you get it right for a couple of weeks
0: and the unlikeliest of heroes can uh, can really rule the world. Dan, the bloke that probably deserved to be the hero uh, and standing on the podium on the final day was Lance Kluzner. Gilly mentioned him before, but it was an all-round performance for the ages, wasn't it? I mean, it's hard to imagine a player having as much of an influence with both ball and bat and not ending up on the right side of the of the equation in the semi-final.
2: Yeah, Klusner really, uh, I think partly is a product of the strength of South African cricket and the South African team, but also the, uh, the mindset that he had as a cricketer and one that he would uh, go on to demonstrate uh, at at other times in his career uh, was really ahead of the one-day game uh, relative to uh, a lot of other players around the world and perhaps even a few of the other players on his own team in terms of uh, the degree to which he had thought about and Worked his way through the idea of destructive batting at the finish of an innings, and the uh, you know the the detail that he uh, went into and the effort specific effort that he committed to to train for scenarios that other players, whether they be bowlers or batsmen, were really not thinking that much about at that stage, and and I think. Um, in the totality of Kluzner's performances uh, right up until that very last ball, uh, there is a, a harbinger, I think, of where the game was subsequently to go when 2020 arrived. So this wasn't just a performance for the ages within this World Cup. This is a performance that really points us towards the kind of specific skill, training for specific moments in in, in matches that uh, we now see much more commonplace and, and something that I don't think Klusner largely because of the way that
0: South Africa's tournament ended in that semi-final,
2: has ever quite got enough credit for.
0: As I mentioned off the top, a big part of the greatest season it was is talking to the people who were there at the time and, and one of those, of course, was Lance Klusner and we were thrilled to have a conversation with him a couple of weeks ago for 99. Here's a, a bit of a preview of that.
3: And again, you know, not Alan's job to be scoring one run off the last ball, you know, and and extremely unfair for us to, you know, mm. knock on his door and, you know, say, oh, well, whatever happened, happened was because, you know, you dropped your bat or you did this. And for me, that's extremely unfair. And the real answer to, to that question is, where were the top seven batters? You know, where were they? You know, having a shower and watching it on, on telly. And, and we did that too often. To not just Alan, but we did that too often to myself and to to in, in in that tournament as well. So so yeah, of course, of course he's going to be nervous. You know, he has to go and mop up um, the mess left by the other batters, and and that for me was you know the frustrating thing is that you know it's it's easy to to look at me and to look at all but the re- the real problems started long before before that game and uh, as a bowling unit as a batting unit we. We just never did what we needed to do.
0: Uh, Gilly, there, there were plenty of uh, quirky elements as well. We, we've already talked about the opening ceremony, which was underwhelming with fireworks in, 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 in the cloudy London morning, which ended up having smoke in the seating bowl. The microphone wasn't working and so on. Um, that, that's a conversation we have in great depth in one of the episodes on this show. Um, the World Cup anthem Uh, is another talking point that people tend to remember in this part of the world, in the UK, that the anthem, which was written by Dave Stewart of the Eurythmics, didn't come out until the day after England were eliminated. And they were eliminated in in quite controversial fashion in a game that ran over a couple of days. Yeah. And and the story around
1: England in this World Cup is a really interesting one because this was seen as the great opportunity to bring cricket back to prominence in the national sporting landscape. So there was not only the normal pressure of a team wanting to win at home, but there was this extra pressure that it, this was actually going to save the sport in, in England and this is going to mm. make it the number one sport once again. Yeah, it all came crashing down for them in really un- quite unusual circumstances. And we have a really good chat to Alex Stewart about that.
0: Yeah, we do. And here is, a, again, a bit of a snapshot of our, of our conversation with Alex Stewart on 99. Now we had some good times. We had some really tough times. And, um, you know, we had some really good players. Um, and, again, you learn a lot. So <laughs> the continuity or inconsistency of selection never helped. Um, the amount of cricket that we were playing... Both county cricket and then England cricket, so you could have you've learnt, or everyone has learnt so much from yesteryear. But at the time, that that's what it was. So you know, I just wanted to be the best I could be. Uh, I grew up wanting to play for Surrey. I wanted to play for England. Uh, was lucky enough to be selected once for England, and once I'd experienced that, I wanted more of it. And I play with some very, very fine players. But what we weren't, we weren't consistent enough. We weren't consistent enough in selection. We weren't consistent enough in our performances. And therefore, our overall record was hugely inconsistent. But, Dan, while the tournament might not have necessarily been perfect, and there are some things that people can and do point to, the objective was to be the carnival of cricket. And when it came to engaging the South Asian community, that's exactly what it was. Some of the most defining images of the tournament is almost the noise that you hear around the ground from the Indian and Pakistani and Sri Lankan and Bangladeshi fans, even though in the case of uh, Bangladesh, uh, Sri Lanka and India, they had under, un- underwhelming tournaments, but um, it certainly uh, it tapped into a vein, which continues to be a big part of cricket in this country 20 years on.
2: Absolutely. And, and some of the uh, the matches that come to mind in, in that regard, the noise and the enthusiasm of Pakistani supporters at heading. When uh, when Pakistan knock off Australia early in the tournament is is one. Another is India playing mm. Pakistan in the uh, Super Sixes, and the crowd that descended on Old Trafford that day was was something that uh, you know. English cricket hadn't really seen that sort of multicultural, cosmopolitan kind of coming together for a, for a tournament. Perhaps not since the 1970s, when um, you know a lot of the uh, the Windrush generation uh, immigrants from uh, the Caribbean were populating the grounds to watch Viv Richards bat or to watch the the Great West Indian Fast Bowlers bowl. So that sort of atmosphere was something very new. And I I think also uh, there was, um, even though India didn't have a great tournament all up, uh, eliminated eliminated at the Super 6 phase, they brought a lot of runs. Saurav and Rahul Dravid and Sachin Tendulkar, to a lesser degree, all had big days, and that was very much to the delight of the fan following that they had in the tournament in England, and also, of course, a burgeoning television audience around the world.
1: And, Dan, that actually brings... There's a couple of sort of more quirky things that I look at when, when I look at 1999, and it's the last of the great crowd invasions as soon as a game finishes, where thousands of spectators stream onto a ground and that plays into what you were talking about of the, the, that atmosphere and that crowded engagement. The other thing I think it's, it's the apex of what I call the sleeve era of cricket, which is the width of the sleeves that players were using on their shirts is huge, is huge,
0: and it never got bigger than that. It's like the baggy era of cricket. It's clear you blakes were watching very closely. That might be just about enough from us for the time being on The Greatest Season That Was presents World Cup 99. Thanks for your company. We'll talk to you soon.